Pastors, it's a privilege to open God's Word with you again this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to 1 John. 1 John, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. First John 2:28 through 3:10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, we've provided one for you in the in the pew rack in front of you, and our text this morning can pay, be found on page 10:22 in that black pew Bible. So, um, I would ask if uh, you are able, if you would stand with me once more in the honor of reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. First John 2.28-3.10 And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children and now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless this time when we study your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are empowered by your spirit to obey. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning when you were getting ready for church, I assumed that most of you probably took a look in the mirror at some point this morning. You you checked yourself in the mirror to make sure everything was where it was supposed to be. I wonder, when you looked in the mirror this morning, what did you see? What did you see? Perhaps some of you have had the experience that I have now on a regular basis. You know, I'm just coming of age when I remember my dad when he was my age. So I'm 32 years old, and I have very distinct memories of my dad when he was 32 years old. And that's a really weird feeling that I'm coming into. So a lot of times when I look <clears throat> at myself in the mirror, I can see my dad staring right back at me. Some of you guys are nodding your heads because you've had this same experience. This isn't something new that, that I've 
uh, faced all the time growing up. Most of you, or a lot of you, have met my dad before. You've seen him here. Uh, you know that we bear a striking resemblance to one another. Uh, I get this all the time now with my oldest daughter. Uh, she looks a lot like me, and so when we're out in public, a lot of times uh, people will comment on how much uh, we look like one another. And the older I get, the more I see this family resemblance. But it's not just in physical appearance. How many of you, before you had kids, said to yourself, I will never do what my parents did? You were laughing. I know it's true. It happens to me too. Perhaps when you got in trouble when you were little and you started crying or whining, your mom or dad would say to you, you better stop crying before I give you something to cry about. Okay, yeah, (laughs) you guys have been there. Yeah, you've been there. That is the most unhelpful thing we as parents can possibly say to our children who are in distress. And I remember promising myself, when my kids are one day in distress, I will never say that to them. And then comes the day when they're particularly whiny And things are going hard in the Bateman household, and out of my mouth comes that familiar saying that I never thought I would say. Last example. How many of you got the advice before you got married, or maybe you've given this advice before to somebody who's getting married, that you should take a close look at your spouses, at your future spouses, mother or father, because one day that's going to be who you're married to? You guys ever hear that, or you ever give that advice to somebody? Yeah, it's true. It's true. And the longer you're married to that person, the more you see how heavily influenced they were by their mom or their dad. Why are these things true? Why why do these things strike uh, truth within our hearts? Well, it's because children resemble their parents. Children resemble their parents, not only in looks, but in behavior as well. It's just the way God wired us. It's the way God made us. As we've been working our way through the letter of 1 John, we've seen these different tests uh, that John has given us to see if we have genuine faith. We have seen uh, that we are to test our faith by testing our attitude that we have towards our sin. Right? Do, we, do we think that our sin is a big deal or do, we, is, or do we see it as not something very serious at all, especially in light of other people's sin? We've seen the love test. We've seen the love test in which we are to love our fellow Christians because God had loved them first in Christ. And so if if we have genuine faith, then we are going to love other Christians. We've also seen the obedience test. The obedience test. If we say we love God, then we must obey His commandments. And then last week, we saw the perseverance test. That those who have genuine faith in Christ persevere in the faith and remain a part of the fellowship of the church. So if you remember, John is writing this letter to refute those who have rejected the gospel and who have left the church and who are now going around spreading false teachings. But we've seen that John's primary concern isn't for those false teachers. His primary concern is for those who have held fast to the truth and who remain in the church, who are persevering in the true gospel. That's his primary concern. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He, was, he doesn't want them to be let, led away. He wants them to be strengthened in their faith. And we see this morning that he wants to remind us, church family, he wants to remind us who we are in Christ and whose we are 
in Christ. So the main idea of this passage, if you're taking notes this morning, you can see the main idea I have written there at the top of your notes. It's that just as children resemble their parents, so genuine Christians resemble their heavenly father. If I were to summarize the idea of this passage in just a sentence, that's what it would be. That just as children resemble their parents, so two genuine Christians reveal their heavenly father. We're going to see this in three different points uh, spread out through this text. So that brings us to point number one. Point number one in your notes. There's another exhortation to abide in him. Another exhortation to abide in him. Last week we ended with this exact same commandment, this exact same exhortation from verses 24 and 27 in chapter 2, that we are to abide, that is to live or to persevere, to hold fast, to endure in the truth in Christ. We are able to abide, we saw last week, we are able to hold fast in this truth because the Holy Spirit has anointed us and given us all knowledge of the truth. So because of that Holy Spirit's anointing, because of that revelation of the truth, we now have knowledge and we are able to abide in it. So now here in verse 28 of chapter 2, John begins this passage by reemphasizing that same exhortation, that same command to abide in Him. Now there are a couple things I want us to notice about verse 28 here. First thing is that John addresses his readers yet again as little children. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, from verses 12 through verses 14 of chapter 2, that this is a common address. This is a, this is a pastoral uh, term of endearment that John uses towards those who are a part of his church. Right? <clears throat> and we will see here in this text that he's going to go on to spell out what it means that they are little children. What John doesn't mean by calling them little children, I don't think that John means that they are his children in the faith. I think what John is saying here, uh, both here and down in in chapter 3, verse 7, when he calls them little children, he is calling them children of God. I think as you read through the text, as we walk through it, you'll see that that's pretty clear. So he calls them little children. Secondly, we see that the result of obedience to this exhortation to abide in the second part of verse 29 there. Okay, so look down at verse 29. He says to abide in him, right, to abide in him. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 28. I said verse 29. Uh, verse 28. Abide in him. And the result of that is so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at his coming. So if you remember that John here says that it's the last hour, that these Christians are living in the last hour. We talked about how that last hour is this period of historical redemptive history between Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and his second coming in judgment. So there's this, this historical redemptive period from Christ's death and resurrection to his second coming that these guys are living in, that we too uh, today are living in, and, and John addresses this period as the last hour. Now during this time period of the last hour, the last days or the end times, we are to persevere in our faith. So when this age comes to a close, and when Christ returns in judgment, 
We may not shrink back, but we may stand with confidence before God. That's the result. That's the, the result of the obedience to this command to abide. Let me ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, what is the basis of your assurance before God? What is your, where does your confidence rest? Are you confident before God this morning because maybe of your own actions? Because of your own righteousness, to use, God's, or to use uh, John's words here in this passage? What is your hope in this morning? Where, where does your hope rest? Now, to those of you who are here this morning who are Christians, right? you've repented of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus and you know that your confidence is not in your own righteousness. It's not in your own works. You know that if it were up to you and to your good works, you would not be able to stand in confidence before God. You know that the Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Your confidence this morning ought to be in Jesus, in His perfect life and death and resurrection on your behalf so that your sins can be forgiven. Look down at verse 1, 3, 1. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See what the Scripture says about uh, who you are and whose you are in that verse? It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. In other words, this is a love that we didn't earn. This is not a love that we deserve. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you know that you were not born into the family of God. I had a pastor one time tell me that, that God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Right? We're not born into the family of God. The Scripture says that we are adopted into the family of God, that God in His great love for us redeems us from our sins and brings us in and makes us part of His family. So our confidence this morning as Christians, our assurance of faith comes that God made us his children. He made us his children. This is a love that he initiated. It is a work that he began. And the scripture says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand secure this morning that those of you who are in Christ have been purchased and you belong to Him. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Him. There may be those of you who are here this morning who've never put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you don't have this kind of assurance of faith. Maybe you don't have this type of confidence. Now you might be a member of this church. Maybe you've been a member of this church for decades even. Maybe you were even raised in a Christian home with Christian parents who taught you about the love of God. Maybe you've even heard the gospel a million times before. Let me ask you this morning, if you don't have that assurance of faith, if you don't know who you are and whose you are in Christ, what is hindering you from putting your trust in Christ? What is it that is hindering you from giving your life to Jesus. You know, Christ lived a perfect life that you could never live. 
And he died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins that you deserve. And he rose again from the dead, defeating your sin and defeating death so that one day for those who turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus will stand before him in confidence and have eternal life with him forever in heaven. So what is it this morning that's in your way from trusting in Jesus? For some of you, maybe it's money. Maybe it's money. You think that if you need anything, you can just go out and and buy it. You can just provide for yourself whatever it is that you might need. Well, if that's you this morning, I want to I want you to remind you this morning of of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. Right? The rich young ruler. You remember uh, that story. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, uh, tell me what it is that I need to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says to him, What does the law say? And he perfectly summarizes the law. That he's to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he's to love his neighbor as himself. And Jesus says, Well, go do that. And you'll inherit the kingdom. And he said, I've been doing that since I was a little boy. Jesus says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And do you remember how that interaction ended? That rich young ruler walked away very sorrowful. Because the scripture said he was a man of great wealth. What hindered him from coming to Christ from trusting in Jesus, was that he thought he could provide everything he needed for himself. He didn't need anything else in addition to that. Maybe it's not money for you this morning. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's reputation. Are you afraid of what people might think of you if if you do become a a Christian? John addresses that concern here in the end of verse 1. Look down at the end of verse 1. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So if you're here this morning and you're reluctant to put your trust in Jesus because you're afraid of what people might think of you, I've got news for you this morning. People will think that you're weird. People will persecute. People will say all kinds of false things about you. That is a promise from the Scripture from the Lord Jesus Himself. Yes, if you put your trust in Jesus, the world will reject you. But it's not just you that they're rejecting. It's not anything they've got against you. John says clearly here, it's Jesus that they're rejecting. They don't know you. They don't understand you because they don't know the Father. And so it's not you that they're rejecting. It's ultimately Christ that they're rejecting. Remember Jesus' words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Jesus also says elsewhere that a servant is no greater than his master. They're going to treat you just like they treated Jesus. So who are you living for? If you're here this morning, if you never put your faith in Christ, and, and maybe this whole idea of reputation is just a hindrance in your way, Let me encourage you this morning that a life lived in pursuit of fading riches and a life lived in pursuit of fading reputation is a life that is wasted. It's a life that's wasted. Repent and believe this morning. Be a part of the family of God. But how can we know? How can we know if we are living in this truth? 
Well, that brings us to our second point. Point two, God's children resemble his righteousness. There's a family resemblance here. God's children resemble his righteousness. In the early 1900s, uh, the University of Southern California football team began issuing T-shirts for each player to wear underneath their shoulder pads. Uh, T-shirts weren't immensely popular back then. Um, They were kind of new. They were kind of a new thing. Uh, And so in order to prevent uh, chafing and to maximize comfort during games, uh, this football team, uh, USC Trojans, began issuing these T-shirts for the players to wear underneath their uniforms, underneath their shoulder pads. Well, uh, because of their comfort, these things became really, really popular, and USC had a problem on their hands because all of a sudden all their T-shirts started disappearing. People started stealing them. Students started stealing them. So they had a bright idea. They had a great idea. And in 1932, they began screen printing on the front of their T-shirts, Property of USC Trojans. And then they'd have the size of the T-shirt screen printed also on the front of the shirt. Well, their plan backfired. That made them wildly popular. And so USC had another, the athletic department had another great idea. They said, here's an opportunity for us to make some money. So they began mass producing these property of t-shirts and began selling them. Now today, every single sports team in existence in the United States has a property of line of apparel. Perhaps some of you have drawers that are full of property of UK basketball in your house. I used to have one that said property of Alabama football, right? And when we wear those shirts, when we wear those shirts, what we're saying, the proclamation that we're making is not that I stole a shirt from the University of Kentucky. At least I hope you didn't steal a shirt from the University of Kentucky. What we're saying is that we identify ourselves, that our allegiance lies with this team that we are property of that team, right? That they have our allegiance. That's who we identify ourselves with. So we too as Christians have identity markers. But what is it that marks us out as belonging to the family of God? Well, in short, we see in these verses that God's children who belong to Him are marked by a resemblance of His righteousness. Now, John makes this point in two different ways, and he spreads it out all throughout the first 10 verses of chapter 3. And so I'm just going to clump these two different ways together, and we're going to look at each one of these uh, things, okay? So first, he puts it negatively, right? He he puts a negative spin on this identity marker. Look down at at chapter 3, verse 6. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Now down in verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And again in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And then in verse 10, there's a summary of it. By this, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you see there how he he puts this identity marker in a negative spin, right? Whoever does not obey, whoever, 
does not purify himself, whoever is not righteous as he is righteous is not part of the family of God. But he also uh, puts it positively as well. He puts a positive spin on it as well. Look up at chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now look again at 3.3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And again in 3.7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now I want you to notice something about all of these references. John is not stating some possible outcome of being a child of God. He's not saying that if you're a child of God, then maybe you will practice righteousness as he is righteous. He's not saying that if you're a child of God, if you're born of him, then maybe, possibly, you might purify yourself as he is pure. It's not what he's saying. But he's also not issuing a command here. It's not a command that he's issuing. He doesn't say, you better purify yourself as he is pure. That's not what he's saying either. He's just merely stating a fact. He's stating a fact that our hope for eternal life and our holiness before God and thus our holiness here in this life are inextricably linked to our union with Christ. One pastor said that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But grace and faith are never alone, but Christ has not left us alone. Those he saves, he sanctifies. Your salvation, your justification, your being declared righteous before a holy God results in your sanctification. This ongoing process of being made more and more and more like Jesus. Now that process doesn't finish until the Lord calls us home or till He returns. Until we're glorified in Him, standing complete in Him. And that's the race we're all running. That's the race that we're all on right now. Some of you are here this morning and you hear these verses and maybe they discourage you a little bit. I have to admit to you this morning as I was wrestling with these verses this week, uh, there were moments where I was really discouraged, and here's why. You read passages like, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And you think, am I holy enough? Am I holy enough right now to be considered a child of God? I think about the sins that I struggle with, the sins that I've struggled with this past week. Right? And, I, and I wonder, am I, am I holy enough to be considered a child of God? You read this, this is strong language that John is using here. No one born of God keeps on sinning? It's strong language. I want you to think about this. John cannot be saying here that Christians won't ever sin. Nor can he be preaching some type of doctrine of perfectionism. This idea that we come to Christ and he makes us perfect. Right here and right now, we'll never struggle with sin uh, at all. And I want to point you back and remind you of what John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 
First John chapter 1, verse 8 said, If we say we have no sin, and remember, John's writing here to believers. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John can't be contradicting himself here. Right? He can't be saying, on the one hand, if we say we're not sinners, then we're deceived, we're blind. But if you're born of God, if you're a child of God, then you better not sin. Right? Because sinning is not done. Right? Do, you, do you see how there's maybe a, a contradiction there? If what John's saying in these verses is that in order to be a child of God, you have to be perfect. I don't think that's what John is teaching here. Let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 2. I think there's a clue there. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children right now. Look at what he says next. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Did you, did you catch what he did there? Do you see what he's saying? This is what theologians call the already and not yet. That those who are justified, that those who are saved, who have genuine faith in Christ, they live in this time period, in these last days, of the already but the not yet. We're already saved from our sins. We're already declared righteous before a holy God. We're already justified and we can stand with full confidence and assurance of faith before God the Father. But we're not yet fully saved yet. The Holy Spirit is still at work in our lives rooting out sin that's embedded so deeply in our hearts. This ongoing process of, of sanctification. See that already not yet? So who are we? Well, we're children of God right now. We are saved and we are kept by grace. But we are not yet what we will be because when Christ returns, we will be like Him and we shall see Him as He is. John Newton, who is a famous hymn writer, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, once said this. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. But praise the Lord that we are not only saved by God's grace, but we are kept by God's grace as well. You're not saved by God's grace and then kept by your works. You're saved by grace and you're kept by grace. The reason John writes these verses is not to scare you. It's not to make us question our assurance, but it's to show us what our attitude towards our sin needs to be. Do you think that sin is an acceptable part of the Christian life? That's you this morning. Think again. Think again. Our lives are not to be marked by just despondent acceptance of our sin, but our lives are supposed to be marked by spirit-empowered war against our sin. John Owen once said uh, in the opening of his book, um, uh, Overcoming Trials and Temptation, he said, be killing sin, the mortification of sin. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Our life is to be marked by an ongoing spirit-empowered war against our sin. 
All the while we wait for our Savior who will one day come and make us new. So if you're struggling to fight against your sin this morning, be encouraged. Be encouraged. That brings us to our final point this morning. Last point. Satan's children resemble his sinfulness. Now there's a big contrast here in these verses. Just like God's children resemble God's righteousness, so too Satan's children resemble his sinfulness. Let's look down again at chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. John says, little children, again, there's that address, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Just a few things really quickly I want us to notice from these verses. First again, here we see that John doesn't want his fellow believers to be deceived. He says, little children, don't be deceived. We saw this last time, right? That Satan is a great deceiver. And these false teachers, these antichrists who have left the church and who are traveling around Ephesus are seeking to spread this false gospel to deceive those who were truly believers. And John says of these people that they don't accept believers because they don't know God. Secondly, just as the child of God's life is marked by righteousness, so the children of the devil are marked by sin. John says this is because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So there's the test. There's the test. The one whose life is marked by an attitude of war against sin and regular habitual repentance and turning to God's grace is born of God. However, the one whose life is marked by an indifference towards sin, and perhaps even in our world today, a celebration of their own sin. They are not children of God. John says that they are children of the devil. Third, I want us to see that these who wallow in their sin will share in their father's destiny. They'll share in their father's destiny. There's an inheritance coming to these children. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, you are on a path that will lead to your certain destruction. Lead to your certain destruction. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 that the way of the wicked will perish. The Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, let me ask you this question. Why would you die in your sin? Why would you die in your sin when Christ made a way for you to live? Repent and believe this morning. Put your trust in Christ. Well, on June 6th of 1944... Allied troops landed on the coast of Normandy in an invasion against Hitler's army on the Western Front. 
Battle of Normandy lasted for three days. The proactive strikes went on for three days. And a final push to liberate Europe. And if the Allied troops' mission was successful, which it was, marked the beginning of the end of Hitler's fight on the Western Front. That day is known as D-Day. D-Day. It's a military term used to denote the initiation of an attack. By the end of June 11th, D-Day plus 5, 326,547 troops. It's a staggering number. 326,547 troops. 54,186 vehicles. And 104,428 tons of ammunition and explosives had landed on the beach of Normandy. Things had not been going so well on the eastern front as well for Hitler and his army. Uh, They'd been defeated in the Battle of Stalingrad and and the Soviets were pushing in on the east. Uh, The Allied forces from the south were pushing up through North Africa and the southern front was being lost and now Hitler lost the Battle of Normandy uh, here on the western front. Anybody with half a brain in their head could have seen this thing's over. He's surrounded. There's nowhere for him to go. But did Adolf Hitler in that moment say, whoops, <laughs> sorry, you know, I surrender. No. It wasn't until May 8th of 1945 that Hitler would finally formally surrender in a day that's known as V-Day, or V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. Of those 11 months between D-Day and V-E Day, though the war was essentially over, it was won, there was no way for the Germans to come back and win. Those 11 months hosted some of the bloodiest battles in the entire war. The Battle of the Bulge was fought during those 11 days. Most casualties of both German and Allied troops happened when the war was essentially over. Well, biblically speaking, the cross and the resurrection is like our D-Day. Christ is one. Death has been beaten. Sin has been atoned for. Christ has purchased and secured our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. But it's not like the devil just sits back and says, whoops, sorry about that. I surrender. No. The Apostle John says in Revelation uh, chapter 12 that the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He says that he wages war on the offspring of the woman, those who keep the commandments of God and who abide in the testimony of Christ. Brothers and sisters, our VE day has yet to come. And until our consummation, we are right now in the bloodiest part of the war. So, brothers and sisters, fight. In the power of the Holy Spirit, fight against your sin. In the power of God's grace, wage war on your sin. Depend on Christ. Abide in the truth. Live in that grace. Abide in God's grace. And rest. Rest in confidence 
in confident assurance that Christ has won the war and that He will strengthen you for the fight. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to You this morning with thankful hearts that You've won the war. But Father, we pray and we ask for Your help. Lord, that You would give us strength in the midst of the fight. Lord, as we're in this process of sanctification, as we're in this process of of waiting for what it is that we will one day be, Father, I pray that that will instill within us confident hope and assurance that You who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who've never trusted in You. Lord, open their eyes this morning. Help them to see that their path ends in destruction. Lord, I pray, just as You say in Psalm 2, that they would bow the knee, that they would kiss the Son, lest He become angry with them and they perish in the way. Lord, we pray these things for our good, but for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. We come now to our time of response, brothers and sisters. I want to invite you this morning, as we stand together to sing, uh, just to respond however it is is that the Spirit is calling you to respond. If you want to take a moment just to pray, to ask God for strength in your uh, fight against sin, uh, then I would invite you to do that. Uh, If you want to know more about what it is uh, to be a Christian, and you're interested in that, I'll be standing right down front. I would love to talk with you a little bit more about what that looks like. Perhaps you're here this morning, and as, you, as we've been studying through the book of 1 John, you're here and you're thinking, you know what, this is a good church that I need to link arms with, that I need to do battle with these folks, and you're interested maybe in joining our church. If that's you this morning, I'd love to talk with you about that more as well, what that looks like in the process that we go through. But however it is that the Holy Spirit's calling you to respond, I invite you to stand with me now, and let's sing, and let's uh, respond to God's Word. Priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Oh, 
for being with us here this morning. You can see on your announcements a few, uh, a few announcements. You can see on your screen a few of the announcements. I'm sorry, I am brain dead right now. Um, a couple of really important things uh, today. If you're interested in going with us on um, one of our mission trips, particularly uh, to Poland, uh, those applications are due today. And so if you can get those to us today, if you lost your application or maybe you need another one, uh, you can pick one of those up in the literature uh, bracket that's right outside this door right here. Uh, you can just um, grab one of those, fill it out, uh, and then come back tonight. Uh, tonight at 6.30, we're going to have a prayer service. And so we want to invite all of you to be here tonight uh, to pray with us corporately. Uh, and then also at 5.30, there's a deacons meeting. Uh, there's one other thing I want to point out. Uh, you see on your screen there that uh, uh, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, there's supposed to be a men's Bible study. Uh, Cal Ray's uh, funeral and visitation is going to be here at the church tomorrow and Tuesday. And so uh, we're going to call that Bible study off tomorrow night because uh, that where we usually meet is used as kind of a family reception area. And so uh, there won't be any men's Bible study tomorrow night uh, at 7 p.m. Uh, I want to invite Miss Carol Lewis to come up. Uh, she wanted to share uh, a challenge that Cal Ray and Christine issued to all of us just a few weeks ago uh, to stand firm and to make uh, our faith public and to be bold in that. And uh, Miss Carol wanted to share with you guys this morning. So church family, I want to I wanna have another uh, time of prayer specifically to pray uh, for um, the Lewises and for their Sunday school class. That's a tight-knit group of, of folks, and Cal Ray was a big part of that class, and uh, he was a big part of this church, and the example of faith that he set was, uh, was just outstanding, the way that he persevered through those trials. And so uh, let's have one more time of prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts, Lord. You say in your word that the death of one of your saints is precious in your sight. And so, Father, I pray that as we stand firm in our faith in you, with confident assurance of our faith in you, Lord, I pray that we would grieve the loss of our brother, but, Lord, that we would not grieve as those who have no hope. Father, that we would stand in full assurance that one day you're going to return and that you're going to cause all of us to wake up, to come back, to raise from the dead, Lord, with new bodies, Lord, in a new heaven and a new earth. And so, Father, we pray. Lord, I pray for, for that Sunday school class, Lord. Is there a tight-knit group of folks? And as they mourn the loss of Cal Ray, and as they stand by Christine, Lord, I, I pray that you would surround them with your love, that you would fill them with your spirit. Uh, Lord, that, um, 
that they would grieve, but they would grieve with hope. Lord, I pray that this would remind us of how life uh, is short, and Father, that uh, life is sweet, but Lord, life with you is sweeter. So Father, I pray as we look forward to the day when you return, Lord, help us to stand strong, help us to stand firm, help us to stand with confidence, knowing that you love us, that you sent your Son to live and to die, Lord, so that we might be a part of the family of God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.